You're listening to online media from Glendale Christian Church. For more information, visit us at glendalecc.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at glendalecky. Hey, it is so great to see everybody here this morning. Uh, I am just, we've been praying about this day for a long time and, and how many people would actually show up and what it would look like if everybody that was a part of our church was here together. And you're here, and let me just tell you, it looks incredible. All right, so give yourselves a round of applause. With that said, it's time to release some of, our, some of you all that are the best-looking group of our bunch. It's kids' church time, and so uh, you all are dismissed. Uh, Miss Beth and Miss uh, Avery, they're all back there and their crew, and they're ready for you. And uh, so you, you guys are going to have a great time. Hey, I really appreciated Tim's point uh, in his communion meditation that he was making that we is better than me, and we is always better than me. That, that's part of the reason why we chose to go to one service, so that we could be together. Um, it, that, that point that we is better than me, that was exactly the point that D.L. Moody, who was a, a prominent Chicago, a prominent preacher in the 1800s, it's that point that he was trying to make when he was visiting with a, with a very wealthy Chicago citizen. And while they were visiting, the idea of church came up. And, and during their conversation, this, this wealthy member, man said to, said to D.L. Moody, he said, Hey, I think that you can be just as good a Christian outside the church as you can be inside it. His point was that, you know, you don't have to be a Christian to go to church. And D.L. Moody didn't really respond, at least verbally, to, to the man. Instead, he just walked over to the fireplace that, that they had going because it was the middle of winter there in Chicago. And he grabbed the, the I, don't, I, I grew up in the 90s, so I don't know what that thing is that you call to remove coals from the fireplace. But he, he grabbed one of those things and he removed a, a coal, a burning coal from the fireplace. And he put it down on the hearth. And the two men sat there together and they watched the, this coal, this ember, die out. While they, watched the man, while, while they watched it die out, the other man said, I see your point. It's point well taken that you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You don't. There's nothing in Scripture that, that says, you know, thus saith the Lord. But it's as like somebody posted on Facebook this week. You don't have to go home to be married either. But if you don't, you're probably not going to stay married very long. And I think that's the point that D.L. Moody was making. And I often wonder about that. I wonder how many times Christians have launched out from the church. They've said, you know what, I I can be just as good a Christian outside without the church as I can with it. And so they they left. And and some people, they left for very good reasons. Maybe maybe they were were people who had been burned by by the church. And let's be honest, it it happens. Sometimes you you go to a church and and you get burned by by the people in the church. You get burned by the leadership. And and so you you just say, you know what, I'm better off without it. And so, so they left. So it's, it's always been true because the church is made up of, of humans. It's made up of imperfect people. That there's always some imperfections in the church. The church has always had its share of racism and, and immorality and greed and every other sin that you can think of as a part of it. But people that leave the church looking often go in search of what they can only find as a part of the church. And so... So this morning, I, I want to encourage you, and, and this is kind of going to be a message that is 
preaching to the choir because you all are all here, right? So like you, you don't need a message about the dangers of leaving the church because you're here, right? But, but here's the thing, is that we all know people, right? We all know people who have left the church at some point or another. We all know our friends, family, neighbors, co-workers. We all know people that have, that have said, you know what? Church just isn't for me anymore. And so this morning, I want to encourage you to go to those people, to find those people and, and bring them, encourage them, and bring them back into the fold. Because here's the deal. What they left looking for, they can only find in Christ. And so some people leave for, for good reasons. Other people, they leave because they get bored, right? They, they leave. Who wants to, 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 to sit and listen to a 30-minute lecture about a book that was written several thousand years ago? Right? That doesn't, for most people, that doesn't just sound a lot, like a lot of fun. And so they leave, and, and they become wearied by the, by the unvarying routine. They, they, week after week, they face the same crowded parking lot. They sing the same songs. They see the same faces. And, and so they, they just get bored with the routine, and they leave. So here's a question I, I just want us to consider this morning. How, how could something that strikes some as riddled with hypocrisy, and for others, boring, be so absolutely essential for our spiritual survival. Because if you don't go to church and you're a Christian, it's kind of like being married and not going home. You're probably not going to stay one for very long. I think part of the, the problem is that we misunderstand the nature of, of, of church. And our language is a dead giveaway. Just, just think about how we talk about church. We talk about going to church like we talk about going to the, to the grocery store or going to the mall or going to any other event. We think of the church as, as, a, as a place that we visit, a building with four walls that, that we just visit, rather than a reality that we live every single day. The early Christians, though, the early Christians, they didn't talk about going to church. They talked about being the church. And in this church, and the Christian churches as a whole, um, we're part of what's called the Restoration Movement. And the, the whole idea behind the restoration movement was simply this, that we want to restore the church to the early church principles, to, to, what, what, <coughs> excuse me, to what the first century church believed in. That doesn't mean that we're going to do, do church exactly the same way, because guess what? They didn't meet in a building. For most of those Christians, it was illegal to meet in a building like this. They would have been, they would have been tortured and killed for that. Um, we're, we're not going to sing the same songs that they sang. Guess what? The, the first church of Jerusalem is not singing. Uh, it's not in existence anymore. So we don't have the songs that they sang. So we're not going to sing those songs anymore. We're going to sing different songs. The way that we do church is going to be different. But the principles, the principles from, that we find in that first century church are what we want to strive to be a part of, what we want to, to exemplify. And so the early church, they didn't talk about going to church they talked about being the church, and nowhere is that more apparent in Act, than Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, if you've got your Bibles, I'd love for you to flip over there, and we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Um, in verse 41, it records, this is right after Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Uh, the Holy Spirit has come upon the disciples. Peter gets up, and he, he gives this incredible message that is, that is Holy Spirit-filled. And at the end of that message, he says, it was, it was you who crucified Christ. And, and Scripture says that they were cut to the heart. The listeners, they were cut to the heart. They were pierced. They were convicted uh, of their sins. And they, so they interrupt Peter's sermon, and, and they, they cry out to him, what, what do we need to do? Brothers, what must we do? That's what they said. In other words, how do we make this right? How do we get right with God? 
And so Peter tells him, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, this is not just a promise for you, but it's a promise for all generations. It's a promise for those who are going to come after you. And so right after that, it says that about 3,000 people were added to their number. Now, I don't know what I would do if there were 3,000 people here this morning. And I would say, hey, we're probably going to take up two offerings, right, Mike? Uh, now, that, that would be an incredible thing to have 3,000 people in, in one service. But what would happen if 3,000 people all decided to come forward during the invitation song? Because that's essentially what happened here. 3,000 people come forward. I, I, I know that arms would get tired of baptizing people, right? Like, that's a lot of baptizing to do. That's an incredible harvest. But, but here's the thing that is so easy for us to get hung up on. We get hung up on that, that part that 3,000 people were added to their number. But that was just the beginning. That was just the beginning. Their conversion was not the end of the story. It was the beginning of the story. In the very next verse, in verse 42, Luke writes this. He says, they were continually, those that had just been added to the number, those, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That's those who had, who had just experienced this salvation experience. It, it didn't simply, they, they didn't simply go to church. They lived in continual devotion to certain things. They became the church. And instead of being a weekly snack to, to boost their spiritual energy, they, they were engrossed in fellowship with believers. And, and it was like an IV drip. Instead, instead of just a little snack that, that sometimes we treat communion as, the, their fellowship with believers was, was like an IV drip that, that just flowed into their lives. Being saved wasn't the beginning, wasn't the end of their story. It was the beginning of their story. And so Luke mentions four characteristics there in verse 42. And then he elaborates on each of them through the next few verses. And these characteristics indicate that the church is, is not something that we do or that we visit. It's Rather, it's something that we live. And so I want to take just a few minutes this morning to talk about these four things that, that we see in this verse. And, and the characteristics that we see of the church. And here's the first thing I want you to notice is that the early church was a learning church. The early church was a learning church. Luke says that they were devoted to the apostles' teachings. You, you might say that the Holy Spirit opened up a school in Jerusalem that day, and his teachers were the apostles, and, and the students were these 3,000 kindergartners who had just been enrolled in, into school. It, it might have been tempting, though, for these early believers to, to say, you know, we don't need the apostles' teachings. Let's just look at what happened on the day of Pentecost. What we, what we really need is just more of the Holy Spirit. And I know some people that come to church like that. They think, you know what, we, we really don't need our Bibles. We don't need to, to prepare and study or anything like that. We just need more of the Holy Spirit. And I'm just going to tell you, more of the Holy Spirit is never a bad thing, all right? It's never a bad thing. But, but there's some preparation, I think, that goes into in place here. The Holy Spirit works in, in preparation as much as he does in, in providence, okay? So understand that the Holy Spirit works in preparation. As you study the scriptures for yourselves, the Holy Spirit begins to work in your life. When, when I am studying for sermons, I am convinced that the Holy Spirit uh, works in my preparation as much as he does, maybe even more than when I stand up here and deliver sermons. I, and I'll give you an example of how this works. I, I plan my sermon calendar out pretty, pretty good in advance, um, Usually around October or November, I'll start thinking about the next year. And I'll start planning sermon series out for, for the entire next year. 
Now, of course, there's going to be some things that change along the way. But, but I can't tell you how many times it's happened where somebody has come up and they said, Man, you, you preached that message just for me. He's like, No, I didn't. I, I really didn't. I, had that me- I planned that message six months ago. It just, it just worked out that God's providence, God's Holy Spirit, moved in such a way that, that he knew that that's what was needed for you on that day. I believe the Holy Spirit works in preparation. And, and here's what's interesting to me. When, when Luke says the Holy Spirit came to dwell in these 3,000 new believers, notice he doesn't say anything about wind or fire or tongues, anything like what the, what the apostles had experienced earlier before. He says, instead they became learners. They sat at the apostles' feet, hungry for instruction. And and see, that's what happens. When the Spirit of God invades our lives, He he makes us hungry for His Word too. One one of the common excuses I hear, and you all have heard me say this before, one of the common excuses I hear for why people leave a church, and they always say, don't take it personal, but it always feels personal, is they say, well, I'm just not being fed. I'm just not being fed enough. Let me just tell you, can, can we be real honest about this? If you only ever eat on Sunday, you're never going to eat enough, all right? If you only ever eat on Sunday, you're going to get hungry through the week, and you're never going to be full when you leave on Sunday after lunch. That's just the way it is. If you don't believe me, try it this week. Eat lunch today, and then don't eat anything else the rest of the week. I guarantee by tomorrow afternoon, you're going to be like, you know what? That peanut butter and jelly is sounding pretty good right now. You're going you're to grab something to eat. And, and it's the same way with our spiritual life. If you don't feed yourself during the week, you're going to get hungry. You're going to get hungry and you will never be satisfied wherever you go to church. With, with, and however great preacher, it could be Billy Graham, it could be whoever, it could be the greatest preacher you know. They are never going to be able to feed you enough. You're always going to be hungry. So open up the Bible and feed yourself. At some point, you've got to pick up a fork and feed yourself, Right? That's what we, we teach our kids that, right? There's, there comes a certain point in, in when we're raising our kids that we say, all right, I'm not going to spoon feed you anymore. You, you can feed yourself. And let's be honest, if you've got multiple kids, for that second kid it happens probably a lot earlier, doesn't it? It happens a lot earlier in life than it did for the first one. You say, you know what, I'm tired. I'm tired of spoon feeding you. If you only ever eat once a week, you're going to get hungry. So pick up a fork. But notice this too, that the, that the teaching authority of the apostles, it was authenticated by many miracles. The, the apostles, they performed many miracles, and so the believers, they were in awe of the miracles, and it gave the apostles credibility. To, and, and so because of that, they listened to the apostles even more. They devoted themselves even more to their teaching. If you saw me heal a blind person this morning, you'd probably listen to whatever I had to say too, right? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have the power or the authority to heal people. Just don't. God didn't give me that gift. I, I, sometimes I think it would be cool to have, but, but he didn't give it to me. But here's the thing. We, we don't need the miracles like, like they did. Miracles were prevalent in, in the early days of the church because it authenticated, it gave credibility to the apostles, to, to the scriptures that they were teaching. But guess what? We have the scriptures now. The, the only churches in, that didn't have a copy of the New Testament were the churches in the New Testament. We, we don't have that problem now. We have scriptures that we can open up and, and, and they've been proven time and time and time to be true, to be credible. So, so you don't need um, me to heal somebody to, to, to validate the message. If you want to check my message, if you want to fact check me, open up your Bibles. That's all you have to do. And, and honestly, you should do that with whoever you're listening to. Whether it's me or Mike or Bobby or, or just any other preacher. You should open up your Bibles and fact check us. We, we don't need those anymore. We don't need the miracles anymore. 
Because we have the Scriptures. And so we should study the Scriptures at home and here and, and with an eye toward obeying them. And when we do, we're devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, just like the first century church did. The second thing I want you to see about the early church was that not only were they a learning church, but they were a loving church. Luke says that the believers were devoted to fellowship. And I'm just going to tell you, that word has become often overused in Christian circles. So much so that oftentimes we, we barely really remember what it, was, what it means. The, the original Greek word, though, for fellowship was a word called koinia, which meant to hold on to something in common or, or to share something. As believers in Christ, we, we all share in things. 1 John 1.3 reads this, it says, Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The, the most precious thing that we have in common is our connection to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When, when we share together uh, in Him, all of our differences melt away. Honestly, I don't care what, what gender you are, what race you are, what your socioeconomic status is. When we are one in Christ, all of those differences, all of the things that, that make us different from one another, they're all gone. They are, because we are one in Christ, in the Father, and in the Holy Spirit. That's why the church, the church is really the greatest institution in all of history. The church was the first institution in all of history to bring together uh, Jew and Gentile, men and women, slaves and free men. And it should be that same way in the church today. The, the church ought to include rich and poor, white and black, blue collar and white collar, healthy and unhealthy, and young and old, and everybody else too. Whatever group you're in, there is a place for you in the church. There ought to be. And let me just say, if you're comfortable with everybody that's in this building right now, if you're comfortable with everybody, then we have not opened up the doors wide enough. We should be throwing open the doors to everybody. And look, you don't have to believe and agree with everything that they believe morally or politically. I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. There are going to be Republicans and Democrats in heaven. I know, Jeff, I know that surprises you, but they're, they're, going, to, they're going to be there. There are going to be some in the other place too. But whatever, there, there just should be a place for everybody in the church. Now, does that mean that we're going to bring everybody in and just welcome all of their sin? Well, we're going to welcome their sin. And we're going to preach Christ and Him crucified. And we're going to live like Christians so that they don't stay the same way that they were when they came in the building. When they come and be a part of our fellowship. In fact, our lives should be such a reflection of Christ's lives that, that they begin to ask questions immediately and they say, you know what, something's different about you than it is me. And what is it about you that, that makes, makes you have this hope? And we should be able to tell them about the hope that we have in Jesus. Because ultimately, don't we want them to have that same hope? Don't we want those people that are outside the body of Christ to have the same hope in Jesus that we have? To have that same hope for eternal life that we have? The early church was a loving church. We share in Jesus. We share in, 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 the, in the Father and in the Holy Spirit. But we share, we share in something, but we also share out something. In verses 44 and 45, Luke describes how the believers, how they sold their property and their possessions, and they used the, the proceeds to help those in need. Now, now some Christians have, have said that this practice was an early form of, of communism and, and that the church should enforce that same style of lifestyle within the church. And, and I'm just going to say that's not exactly the case. Is it true? Maybe yes, most likely no. Here's, here's the thing. Jesus and his disciples, they, they never directly for, forbid private ownership. In fact, they assume it. 
Right here in, in Acts, we see the church meeting in private homes. And we, we can just assume that those people still own their own homes. They, that they had not given their homes over to the church, to the disciples. They, they own their own ha- homes. Furthermore, in, in Acts uh, chapter 5, Peter confronts Ananias and Sapphira when they pretended to give away all of the proceeds from the land that they sold. He said, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? In other words, you owned it, right? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? In other words, it's still your money? And so, so private ownership was always just assumed by the church. Having said that, though, there, there is a tent of this that we need to, to give some attention to. When, when the Spirit of God enters into a person's life, this sort of sacrificial giving is often the result. It's not communism. Communism is, is a system where only the government benefits. In, in this system, everybody benefited. And it wasn't forced. It wasn't forced. People didn't sell their stuff and give it away because somebody was, was forcing them to. They, they sold their stuff and gave it away because they felt the desire to do so. Because they felt like that was the way that the church would benefit the most. And so they, they responded to people in need. And, and let me just say that when the Holy Spirit invades our lives, that, that kind of sacrificial giving should also invade our life. Because we get to a point where we realize money and possessions, they don't define us. They're, they're not what our identity is found in anymore. And for a lot of people, that's, that's, how, that's just how they identify in life is by, by what they have and how much of what they have. It's almost as if they, they kind of think whoever dies with the most in the end wins, right? That, that's how a lot of people live their life. But, but for the church, for Christians, it should be different. The Holy Spirit invades our lives and it compels us to give away our life. For the sake of those who are in need. We, we can't ignore what 1 John 3.17 says. He, the Apostle John, he writes, Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? That, that verse is particularly troubling in light of the world that we live in where there are so many people in need. This is something for us to think about as we begin to approach Christmas. Christmas is just a couple months away, isn't it? Some of you have already began Christmas shopping, and, and uh, I know that because I've seen your Facebook post about it. Um, there will be people that will spend more in their Christmas gifts than they will, and buy a lot, than they will donate to charitable causes in a year. And, and buy a lot, and I'm not trying to shame you for that. I think Jesus would participate in the giving and receiving of gifts. It's normal for, for people in, in healthy relationships to express love to each other by giving and receiving gifts. That's a normal thing. But we can't let that expression become a pretext for greed and materialism. So let me just ask you, what, what sacrificial giving are you doing? And it doesn't have to be just money, okay? There are other things to give besides money. But, but what sacrificial giving are you, are you doing? What people do you see in need in, in your life around you? And how are you helping them? Because, because John says they'll, they'll know you by the fruit that you bear, right? They'll, that's how people will know the world. That's how the world will know that we're Christians. By the fruit that we bear. They'll know us by our love. So how do we help those who are in need? How do we show those that are in need that we love them? The early church, they were a learning church and they were a loving church. They were also a worshiping church. Acts 2.42 says they were devoted to the breaking of bread and and prayer. The breaking of bread refers to to what we call communion or the Lord's Supper, what we just participated in a few minutes ago. They they celebrated that in the context of, of a meal called a love feast. 
And then when Luke mentions prayer, it's literally the prayers. He, he didn't have private prayer in mind, but rather corporate prayer. And the, the prayers of, of God's people together. Communion and prayer defined their worship. Those were central aspects to, to their worship. The, the early church, so they still met in, its, in the temple and in its courtyard. Acts chapter 3 describes Peter and John. It says they were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. In, in other words, they continued to attend formal worship services in, in the Jewish temple. That, and it consisted of sacrifices and prayer and blessings offered by the priest. But they also participated in, in informal meetings that took place in, in homes. In other words, they ate more than just on the day of worship. They ate all week long. They didn't just go to church. They lived it. They, they did these things day by day by day. It was part of their everyday lives. And I just want to tell you, there, there's nothing like being in a home with other believers and having a meal together. You've heard me talk about small groups before, and, and this, is, this is the reason why I'm so, such a proponent of small groups. Because there is something that happens when you gather believers together outside of the context of a corporate worship setting, where they're able to encourage one another and, and to share life together, do life together, and, and to, to encourage and spur one another on, as the writer of Hebrews says. There's just something that, that transforms your relationship with, with those other believers, but it also transforms your relationship with, with the Father. You begin to see people in, in a new light when you're able to, to be in their home with them and to laugh and to cry and to pray and to share with them. It's, it's, there's an intimacy there that, that, is, that creates vulnerability. If, and I'll just tell you, if that kind of fellowship, if you don't have some, some intimacy in, in, your, in your fellowship where, where you're able to be vulnerable with other people, if that's not part of your church experience, I just want to tell you, you're missing out. You're missing out on the good stuff. If all you do is, is come to church but you're not meeting with, with a small group in a home or, or you're not meeting with, with other couples at, at a restaurant, you're not able to, to share meals with other believers, you're not doing that kind of stuff, you're, you're missing out on the good part, on the good stuff. It's, it's, like, it's like being married but never moving in together. You're missing out on the good stuff. And, and let me just tell you that worship happens in those settings. You don't have to have... Someone that can play guitar and lead you in music to worship. In fact, I'll tell you, most of, most of the people in, in our small group, um, I've sat behind them during worship, and I don't want to hear them sing without everybody else. Um, you can worship without those things. Worship is a part of our life. It's not just what we do on Sunday mornings. The early church, they, they were a worshiping church. The lastly, the early church was a growing church. It, it, the early church... <laughs> It seemed like they, they were always growing. If, when you read Acts chapter 2, it's just a constant, and, and these people were added to their number, and these people were added to their number, and these people were added to their number. I mean, just to ask a question, why does a church grow? Well, Luke gives us part of the answer to that question. He says, a church grows by having favor with all the people. You notice that as the church grew, uh, the only people that were really upset with, with, the, uh, with the church growing were the religious authorities, those who were in control, those who were in power. Everybody else in the community was thrilled about this new group that was coming together. In fact, the, the church, especially women, the, the church gave more rights to women than any other group had ever given before. 
That, that, that was the first group. The church gave more rights to slaves than any other group had ever given before. The, the church dignified every individual, and so the community was thrilled to have this group of people in their community. Let me ask this question. Is the communities that we live in, are, are they thrilled to have us in their communities? If not, then man, we got some work to do. We got some reputation to, to rebuild. And I'm just telling you, we don't do that just by standing here and gathering together as our, our holy huddle on Sunday mornings. The way that we re- rebuild our reputation in the community, and I'm not saying we have a bad one, but the way that we, we strengthen that reputation is by being a part of the community. They didn't sever all their relationships with unbelievers. Instead, they tried to meet needs outside of the church fellowship and, and meet the needs within it as well. One of the things that we've tried to do at, at this church is to let our community know that we support them. And, and we express that support in several different ways. We, we open our building up all the time to, to the community. Uh, we get involved with the Lions Club. Uh, the last Lions Club meeting I was at uh, a few weeks ago, there were, there were 14 or 15 of us there. And I was looking around at the number of people from our church that were part of the Lions Club. In fact, it was more than half of the Lions Club represented were represented from our church. We, we try and be a part of our community and, and, and organizations. We try to be sensitive to our neighbors concerning parking and noise. We, we try to operate with integrity in how we handle our finances. But I think we could do more. I think we could do more. That's part of being a growing church. In fact, I'm just going to tell you, I know we could do more. The church can always do more. But, but there's something else that's at work here. Luke is very careful to acknowledge that the Lord was adding to their number day by day by day those who were being saved. Ultimately, it's the Lord's job to save people. And he's at work among us doing exactly that. But, but if the Lord's going to save people, he often does it through his, his people. He uses us to be the, the vessel. And so we've got to be open and receptive to being able to share the message of Christ with those around us. I want, to, I want to encourage you today, don't just go to church. Live the church. Be the church. When we leave here today, don't think you're leaving church just to come back next Sunday. Think you're, you're leaving the, the confines of four walls and you're going out to the harvest field. You're going out where you can really be the church. In Philip Yancey's book, Church, Why Bother?, Yancey explained that after years of cynicism about the church, he, he realized the key was not finding the right church, but rather understanding the church properly. He, he, looked, he, he learned to look inward and to look around and to look upward and, and to look outward. And I think that's a, a great summary of this passage of, of Acts chapter 2. When, when we're devoted to the apostles' teaching, we're looking inward. We come to grips with what God is saying to us through his word by, by recognizing our need for grace and, and his willingness to provide it. When we express our devotion and our fellowship, we are, we are looking outward. We, we see all the people in need and we commit to helping those in need. We express our devotion by worship and, and by looking upward through the breaking of bread and by prayer in, in, formal, in formal worship settings and in informal worship settings. Let me just tell you, church is not a spectator sport. It's not a spectator sport where we just get to sit back and, and, and rate the performances of those people on stage. Church is a participatory sport. Where everybody is involved, we believe in the ministry of all or in the priesthood of all believers, right? That means that you're a minister. That means that your job is to go out, to go out from here. Finally, looking outward, we see God at work in people's hearts. 
and, and we can see them drawn to salvation. And I hope that we gladly participate in God's work. And we rejoice when He adds to our number day by day by day those who are being saved. This morning, I want you to ask yourself, are you coming to church? Or are you being the church? Because there's a world of difference in those two questions. Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you. And Father, I am grateful for each person here this morning and for their willingness to come and to worship you in a corporate setting. And Father, my prayer is simply this, that as we leave here, that you would encourage us to to continue to worship you, to worship um, on Monday and on Tuesday and Wednesday and every other day this week, and and to come back on Sunday to be re-energized with the family, because we is greater than me. Father, help us to to not just come to church, but to live it, to to live church, to be the church in our homes, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, and in our schools, in our workplaces. Father, help us to give off the hope of Jesus to those around us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.